about a year ago, I was at trivia night at Pino's. After everything wrapped up, a young man came up and introduced himself to me. It was my first time experiencing the classic trope of making a new friend at a bar. We started meeting at other trivia nights, and then a couple months ago, I was at a winery with my friend Jody, somewhere in the, in the seats today, and David was there again. We're catching up, and at one point in the afternoon, we're at a very crowded part of the winery, and he starts asking me questions about divine sovereignty and free will. He knows I'm a pastor, so he thinks, oh, this is my chance to get some of my questions out. So rather than scream at him over the music, I said, hey, let's get, let's get drinks next week. So fast forward to now, and we've probably met about 10 times. David has been seeking for a few years. David has been exploring Christianity for a few years. And over the course of our conversations, David has told me about some of the pain that he's experienced over this time. He told me about the pain of reaching out to Christian friends with some of the questions that he has and receiving pat answers. He's told me about the pain of presenting his rational, logical questions about God and receiving incoherent and weak arguments in response. David knows scripture really well at this point because he's read it several times through as part of his seeking. And in our conversations, we've covered everything from God sending bears to attack the youths who made fun of Elisha's bald head, to Jesus' teachings on divorce, and of course, ontological arguments for the existence of God. In all of our intellectual conversations, and in all of our discussions of church failure throughout the years, the main obstacle between David and Christianity, I think, has boiled down to one thing. Faith. For David, there's a difficulty in entertaining the supernatural claims made by Christianity. David is someone who deeply needs his world to be well-organized into coherent, empirical phenomena, patterns, laws. He accepts the existence of things that can't be explained by science, but he insists that with enough time, enough study, even those things can be harnessed by scientific inquiry. So the idea of a God who can interact with the natural world is much more accessible to him than the idea of a God who does move among and within our natural world but is not constrained by our natural world. It feels to me like most of our conversations have hit the same wall in the end. If we're not willing to entertain the existence of the supernatural, if we're not willing to try on truths from the metaphysical, how can we come to know a God who cannot be circumscribed by that which can be hypothesized? How can we come to know a God who cannot be circumscribed by that which cannot be, by that which can be hypothesized? How can we follow an ascended Christ except by beginning to live as if heaven has descended to earth? How can we know God except by faith? We heard from Pastor Seth last week that the author of the letter to the Hebrews, who I believe is the evangelist Priscilla, but that's another sermon for another time, she describes faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the King James. The Christian standard says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Pastor Seth told us that that word is 
in the Greek, hypostasis, the reality, the substance. It's a word that's used in the early ecumenical councils and the early church creeds to describe the essence and the substance of God. This was an amazing revelation to me last week, and I had to come back to it today. We as seekers of Christ, we want the things that we choose to have faith in to reveal themselves as real and true. And yet Priscilla here is claiming that our faith is the revelation of the objects of our hope. Faith isn't merely a belief that the objects of our hope exist somewhere or will exist someday. Faith actually instantiates. Faith actually embodies. Faith actually concretizes. Faith actually enfleshes the objects of our hope. Faith is not merely a belief in God and goodness and love and justice. Faith is the hypostasis. Faith is the reality of those things. As I was trying to wrap my mind around this, three analogies came to me. The first has to do with light. Faith is like what we learned about in third grade science class, the spectrum of light. Gamma and infrared waves and microwaves are very real all the time, but it's only when we have a proper imaging tool that we can perceive them. They're on the spectrum, but they're not on the visible part of the spectrum. Similarly, the objects of our faith are real now, but they exist on a spectrum that can only be viewed through the lens of faith. The Trinity and the resurrection and the inbreaking of the reign of God are very real all the time, but it's only faith that allows us to perceive their reality, to image them, to do research on them, to build theories on them, to identify patterns with them, to discover laws from them upon which to build our worldview, our view of reality. Faith is our telescope that takes us outside the visible spectrum of the kingdom of man and into the present reality of the kingdom of God. The second analogy has to do with art. Faith is like painting a mural. As we're painting, we don't see the final product yet, but it's the very act of painting that takes the image from the realm of ideas to that of reality. In fact, faith is like any kind of creative process. When I start writing a song, I don't know where it's going to end up. The Psalm Plunge folks who came this weekend and wrote songs didn't know where those songs would end up when they started writing them. But the act of writing itself is an act of faith. Something that at the beginning of the process exists entirely in this inaccessible dimension has so much potential for the dimension that we live and move in when it becomes real. And the more that we craft, the more that the emerging song enters into our lived reality, the song is pulled into our world and then actually reshapes our world. The third analogy has to do with Marvel and science fiction and theoretical physics and a bunch of fun nerd stuff. If you've seen Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, Spider-Man No Way Home, or the most recent Doctor Strange movie, you've heard of this concept of the multiverse. The idea that there are multiple, perhaps infinite, parallel universes existing simultaneously. And with enough scientific or mystical power, we can figure out how to jump from one to the other. It seems that the evangelist Priscilla, it seems that St. John, the Revelator, and many other New Testament authors are proposing that faith is like the multiverse. There's the dimension, there's the universe, if you will, of our current reality and on the other hand, there's the dimension or the universe of our eschatological, our ultimate reality. And if God exists inside and outside of time, and if we participate in Christ through God's work of redemption, 
then just as Jesus operates in both dimensions right now, so do we. By faith in Christ, we literally enter into heaven where the objects of our faith are already operative and are real and are observable and are undeniable. Faith is what allows us not only to jump between the dimensions of the multiverse, but even somehow mystically to exist in both at the same time, to be a part of their gradual yet inevitable merging one into the other until heaven and earth are one and the same. The author of the letter to the Ephesians says that we have already been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Friends, we are already there. We are already in heaven. We are already in the new age. We exist in multiple parts of the multiverse. And so when we, like John, see heaven descending down to earth, it will be less a revelation of something unfamiliar and more like the official unveiling of a mural that we've spent hours painting. By faith, we have our portal to heaven, to the kingdom of God, to the multiverse of majesty. And so it is by faith that we live here on earth. By faith, Miss Malika of Detroit endured generations of willful neglect and inequity at the hands of the city's leadership and survived floods and maintained the spunk and spirit of an educator who has overcome sickness and respiratory challenges to educate young people sent by God to clean mold out of her basement. By faith, Miss Lena Morgan covered half of the walls of her home with handwritten scriptures, which she hid in her heart, so that when the forces of despair came behind the floods, she could take the sword of the spirit and beat them back, never letting them silence the voice of a powerful preacher of the word of God. By faith, Miss Miss Bessie Brown remained attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and thereby knew that it was her time to speak a word to a member of our team who needed reassurance that she had the strength to go back to school and pursue her dreams. By faith, Miss Mary Lloyd has stewarded the stories and homes of these women and so many others in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood of Detroit. With minimal help, minimal resources, stepping in as a defender and an advocate when those responsible for the neighborhood failed to do so. Yet all these, though they were commended for their faith, have not received what was promised, since God has provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. All the great ancestors that Priscilla anthologizes, all the great saints that I just told you about, none of them, none of us, have received what was promised. None of us has received this empirical, observable evidence. None of us has received the complete, unmitigated presence of God, the consummation of God's kingdom that we long for, which makes us perfect, and that is promised to one day come to us. No matter what confirmations I've received of the faith that I've chosen to build my life upon, no matter what spiritual highs I've experienced, no matter what things I've attributed in my life to God's intervention, no matter what I feel is the logical coherence of my faith, I will never truly receive what was promised until heaven has been brought down to earth. And this, I think, is why Priscilla goes from saying that the promise is yet to be delivered at the end of chapter 11 into this word on the cloud of witnesses at the beginning of chapter 12. Hemin nephos marturon. A cloud of witnesses, a throng of martyrs. She tells us that these ancestors are not far off. They're surrounding us. We're in the middle of the crowd of saints. We are part of the heavenly throng described in the book of Revelation. 
and they surround us as they praise God without ceasing day and night. When John describes this cloud of witnesses, he demonstrates in narrative form what Priscilla is saying to us in prose, that they, our ancestors in the faith, have not yet been made perfect without us. John says, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters. So we see from John, we see from Priscilla, these people are in heaven, and yet they are attentive to the goings-on of earth below. They proclaim to God that they are yet incomplete without us, their descendants in the faith. And they will not be free of sorrow. They will not be made perfect until justice has joined us to them. How can this be? They're in heaven, so everything is perfect there, right? Well, if we read closely in Revelation we see that all things are not made new when we ascend to heaven. All things are made new when heaven comes down to earth. Because is heaven really perfect if the ones you love aren't there? Is heaven really perfect if all people and all things that Christ has created have not yet been restored through Christ? And the saints know this. They know that their fate, they know that their timeline, they know that their end is bound up with ours. They are not only paying attention, but interceding for us towards our collective restoration. So we are surrounded by a heavenly throng that speaks to us, worships with us, and prays for us. This is why the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. There's a lot of things working against me and perhaps against you when it comes to this doctrine and belief and practice of the communion of saints. It's the way the Protestant tradition has historically rejected or de-emphasized this doctrine. There's the way that my connection to my ancestors has been violently severed by slavery and white supremacy. There's the way that white supremacy disconnects everyone, even white people, from their ancestry by taking them out of their real heritage and depositing them into these fabricated categories of white and black. And yet when I watch movies like Black Panther and I see the scenes that take place in the ancestral plane, when I read Cole Arthur Riley's description of how the presence of her ancestors animates her spirituality, I hear a different account and I'm formed in a different way. She says... When I think of my ancestors who lived in chains, I often wonder what sacred defiance lived in their minds while their bodies were being dominated by another. For the field and plow and whip can certainly affect the mind, but they cannot possess it. What hidden things of old crouched in the corners of my great-great-great-great-grandmother's consciousness as she stood in the cotton fields? What stories, what dreams, what beliefs about God hugged the crevices of her brain? The oppressor has no power in those deep and secret places. Much of black spirituality, while enslaved, had to live and breathe in these crevices. A faith that depended on the interior life. It is a way of being together in the clearing with God. And we get there by descending into the stories that reside in our bodies. I sit in silence 
but I'm attuned to the whispers of my ancestors and all who formed me. Over the course of my time in the Episcopal tradition, I met a lot of young Christians who would say or tweet things such as, Mary, Theotokos, Mother of God, pray for us. Julian of Norwich, pray for us. Alexander Crummel, pray for us. At first, I didn't understand how or why one would ask a dead person to pray for them. But now I see that if they are alive, if they are concerned with our concerns, if they are before the throne of God interceding for us, as we see in Hebrews, as we see in Revelation, and if their perfection is caught up with ours, then surely I should invoke their prayers. I can use all the prayers I can get. I ask my friends here in this room to pray for me, so why would I not ask my friends in the heavenly room to pray for me as well? This is why I love icons. We have icons around us here. I have icons in my office. They remind me to not only get to know the saints through history, but also they remind me to ask my friends for their prayers. John Lewis, pray for us. W.E.B. Du Bois, pray for us. Fannie Lou Hamer, pray for us. As I do this, my faith teleports me through the multiverse. And I see a glimpse of myself in the heavenly throng surrounded by the cloud of witnesses. But Priscilla doesn't stop with this image of the cloud. Later in that same chapter, she says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks, by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. By faith, we have traveled through the multiverse. We have seen the dimension of heaven. We have been enrolled there. We are worshiping there. We are in the process of receiving what was promised, the kingdom that cannot be shaken. By faith. By faith, we begin living as if the kingdom of God is real. And by grace, God demonstrates the reality of that universe by bringing it down into our own. In bits and pieces, perhaps, at first. In whispers from our ancestors, perhaps, at first in holy spiritual highs, in sorrowful solidarity at first, in Christ-like community at first, and illustrations of liberation at first, in all the various ways in which God shows up in our lives at first. But in all of these things, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Thanks be to God.